0: My name is Brent. I'm the teaching pastor here, uh, back from a little vacation, and uh, kudos Margo for filling in for me last week. Today we start a brand new series. So if we've never met um, teaching pastor here, but a brand new series today, a three-week series called Irresistible. And uh, glad that you made it for the very first part of the series. We we titled Irresistible um, because uh, this idea of many people in the first century, um, at least from what we can tell kind of in Scripture for us, or from some of the passages that we read from, found the person of Jesus to be exactly this. Uh, Many of them were nothing like Jesus, and yet they liked him. And he liked people who were not like him at all. Uh, And this is even true in, like, modern-day society. People who are, like, anti-religion or anti-church, for sure, who find the church very resistible, still look at Jesus, and it's still cool to be pro Jesus, you don't read. A, you can read a lot of anti church and organized religion stuff on Twitter, but no, very rarely do people come out and be like, "Ah, Jesus, overrated. Um, not really into that." That's like, you know, his message, his method, all that stuff just kind of works. And so, even in today's society that is not uh, typically default religion, it, they still find him to be somewhat irresistible. And yet, the church. Unfortunately, the medium for the message, even the message of Christianity, the message of Christianity, one based on grace through faith and, and the fact that there's a God who loves you, like it's very, it's very irresistible. We're drawn to any sort of expressions of grace. Um, and yet, the, while the message may be irresistible, the medium upon which it's delivered, typically the church, um, can be very resistible. So, We are going to be talking about why that is and why um, it shouldn't be, Uh, and if you gave up on Christianity because of something you read in the Bible or something you heard was in the Bible, my comment to you is that you may have given up on Christianity unnecessarily. This is the point that I'm going to try and prove over the next couple of weeks, because typically... What has happened in terms of why you found Christianity to be easily resistible was something that you read or somebody told you something that was in there. And for a while, you were kind of maybe neutral on it. And then somebody heard you were kind of like maybe checking out church or whatever. Um, and they said, well, have you thought about like, that? what do you think about this phrase? And, and if you, for, for many of you, you probably go, that's not in the Bible. And they're like, it is though, look it up. Like here's chapter, here's the verse. And you looked it up and be like, lo and behold there it is. And you're like, "Oh, well, I don't believe that. I mean, that's crazy. And you can't believe that it's in there. And maybe for you, Eastlake's been the first church you've ever really, like, truly been a part of. And so you're like, Brent never talks about this part of it. Like, what do I have to go to 101 and then find out? These are also in here, everybody. You know what I mean? Like, it's very deceptive and disingenuous in that way. And you're kind of glad that I haven't talked about it, but you kind of wish that I would, or you're not sure where it's at. And so you've got like one, one hand on the proverbial door, like, I'm about ready to leave. Uh, and especially if these things get, you know, if there's a sermon series on that specific chapter or, or I just haven't been able to attach that to like real life and there's parts of it that I like. There are things that, that you talk about in general, Brent, that I'm like, oh, I think I want that for myself. I want that for my kids. I want my son to marry one of those types of people. Uh, I want to work for somebody who believes that kind of stuff and operates and lives out in their life like that. But, uh, um, you know, you've got one hand on the proverbial door and you're like, I just, I'm not sure. There's some things in there that's just a little bit out for me. That kind of make me think that I'm out. Or maybe you are bought in, like you're like me, and you've probably for a while been able to do some mental gymnastics in your mind um, because you don't believe that. You don't believe some of those things, and yet somehow you figured out how they don't apply to you, or I don't have to live like that, or, uh, and, and you've justified it in your mind, but you're hoping that nobody asks you to explain it. Do you know what I mean? Like, well, what about this? You're like, blah, la, la la la. I'm going to act like everything that I believe is Jesus and cookies and rainbows and love one another, and let's give ourselves up for one another. And like, that's all the stuff that's like super sexy to talk about when it comes to church. So let's do that. That's what's way more of a draw in that way. So what do you do with the stuff that's, that's not all that irresistible? What do you do with the stuff that is entirely resistible in that way? So but for the next three weeks, including today, I want to talk about why I don't think you need to leave. Why I don't think you need to leave over a passage in there that you that doesn't seem to resonate with with you. And not that you can pick and choose which parts of the Bible. We'll, we'll talk about the difference in there. So just hang on for a little bit. But there is an approach towards a lot of things that I think can change our perspective on it in this way. And I think it has to do a uh, big time with... A shift in the mentality of um, how the world has changed over the last—I think this is a new thing for us that we are having to deal with as a church. Not like East Lake Church, but corporate, big C, capital church, right? Every, every—it's uh, an all skate for all of us, and it's—we are entering into a generation. The millennial generation typically likes to challenge authority. We're not anti-authoritarian. It just you need to prove to us that you deserve to be an authority. You don't just get to assume authority over us, whether that comes to government or who we work for or bosses or supervisors. And if you're a supervisor millennials, then you hate it because you have the title and you're like, you have to listen to me. And they're like, yeah, I mean, I don't. I can just go find another job. And you're like, you know what I mean? So that's the tough part about it. For my parents' generation, my grandparents' generation, and for generations prior to that, there was an assumed respect for scripture. I may not have read it, but I, but I, I don't challenge. I don't want to challenge it. I don't want to say, I don't want to critique it. I, I just assume that it's scripture. There's, you grew up in an irreligious home. You never went to church, but there was a Bible on the coffee table, and it got dusted all the time. And we talked about how that's in the Bible, and, and nobody ever opened up the Bible to prove it. You just assume that, you know, Grandpa knows what he's talking about, and so we just go with that. And then a millennial generation comes along and be like, yeah, well, I mean, let's dive into that a little bit more. I mean, I took a class at CBC when I was doing my AA there, and the class was called Bible as Literature. And I'd come up in a Christian home, grew up in a youth group, did all that kind of stuff. Uh, for me, the Bible was... Like, you just took it, and the whole thing worked, and everything made sense, and this is what we're, this is the basis for what we're going to go for and everything. You don't question this. If these two things don't match, then you've got something wrong over here. It's not this, right? Um, so then I took this class, uh, Bible, literature, at CBC, and, and then a teacher begins to, you know, stand up. And I thought it was going to be, by the way, one of those easy A's, because I was like, dad's a pastor. Like, I had read the whole thing at some point. In high school, I was like, I'm going to read this whole thing, just to do the discipline. I mean, I... Probably fell asleep reading it multiple times. Didn't retain 99% of what I read. But I had read through the whole Bible at one point. So I'm like, this feels like an easy A. Not an easy A, turns out, as it was. Uh, And uh, there were some things that were presented where, uh, well, have you thought about this? And what about this? And why aren't these included in the kind of scripture? And did you know, did you know that so-and-so that believes that this was written post-exilic context and this wasn't really? And if there's a Genesis story, if it talks about creation, uh, how does that work? Because Moses wasn't even around to write that kind of stuff down. It's not like, your diary, today on day one of creation, God had created. He didn't even create man until the sixth day. So, how in the world could he have written what was down on the first day? And you're like, uh, la, 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 I don't want to talk about it. I don't know. I just, I just want to go to church and be a good person. You know what I mean? That's, that's, that's kind of how it had worked for a while. So, if at all, that's like, oh, there's some tension there. I feel it. Like, that, you found yourself in the midst of, on that spectrum, somewhere along the spectrum, and I hope that this series will be a fruitful thing for you. Because what I want to do is, because I, I truly believe that the, the gospel is truly irresistible, and I want to take our cue about what is the foundation for our faith and what is the epicenter of our confidence Is it in the social construct of a book that had come together and provides meaningful life advice and should not be questioned, or is it something more? And when we look at the life of the early church and the disciples who are commended in this text as people who were followers of Christ and who nobody would question the authenticity of a guy like Peter or Paul or James or John or whatever, and yet... This thing called the Bible, Te Biblia in the Latin form of it, would not actually come into existence until well after their death. So if we can say with genuine all, you know, everything, that those were truly, like if we could get, if we could be like them, man, that would be great. They had no Bible to point to and say, that's the source of our faith. They instead, as we're going to look at today, pointed to something entirely different. So maybe, so maybe, just maybe. The epicenter of our faith, the epicenter of our confidence in what we believe should reflect that sort of thinking. All right, so today we're gonna to look at a passage in Acts, uh, several stories that are gonna take place between chapters three through chapters five, in case you wanna uh, read up for yourself later at home. Uh, reminder that the uh, book of Acts was a letter. Uh, Written part two of a a series of letters written by a guy named Luke. In Luke chapter one, uh, Luke was, by the way, one of Jesus' disciples, but not one of the twelve. So let's not get confused there. He was a doctor, really well educated. Um, and then probably wealthy enough to be in a position to write things down. Remember paper, pens, uh, and the ability to learn and write and read and write uh, were all very upper echelon, high society type stuff. Not everybody could do this. Um, and so he probably felt an, a certain obligation to write some of these things down. And we, we can kind of get that because in Luke chapter, when he begins to write his letter by saying to my dear friend Theophilus, um, and it, who appears to be this person who has investigated some of the claims of Christianity, but like any good game of telephone, things have kind of gotten misconstrued over the, over the, 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 the time frame. And so Luke says, I'm going to try and write for you an orderly account of what actually took place so that there's no loss of misinformation that gets to you, right? So I've taken it upon myself to write an orderly account of this. And then he writes this, these two letters. First, he starts with Luke. Uh, a book. He didn't title it. I'm going to write a letter. and It's going to be called Luke, and it's going to be in the Bible, right? He just wrote a letter. The early church later go, that's an important letter. We should keep that for generations to come. What should we name it? Why don't we name it the guy who wrote it? That sounds really great. Not creative, but let's do it. Um, And so they called it Luke. So he did not, by the way, intend to sit down and go, I'm going to write a book of the Bible. That would be a little egotistical, and he wouldn't do that. He is writing to a friend. Keep that in mind. This. So then he writes Luke, and a few years later, he writes about the Acts of the Apostles, the actions of the Apostles post Jesus. We just simply call it the book of Acts, but it's ACTS, the Acts of the Apostles. And in Acts chapter 3, uh, actually, let's start with Acts chapter 1, Jesus has risen from the dead. That, ends, that happens at the end of Luke's first letter. In Acts chapter 1, then he takes his disciples on top of this mountain and then ascends into heaven. And before he does that, gives them these words of encouragement, like, I'm leaving. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Uh, In the meantime, you are going to take this message of who I was and what I taught to the rest of the world, not to Jerusalem and Judea, but to the uttermost parts of the earth. And I'm not going to let you do it alone. I'm going to give you something. I'm going to leave you something in my stead, this thing called the Holy Spirit. It's going to come upon you and you're going to be empowered to go do things that you would not originally be able to do. So that all takes place. They go to Jerusalem uh, post the ascension of Christ. Uh, They experience what's called Pentecost. You can read that for yourself in chapter 2. Then they leave sort of inspired, and what you see is kind of a shift in their attitudes. Acts chapter 3, then, it says that Peter and John go to the temple to pray, and while they're there, they come across a lame man who had been lame from birth. Why is he lame? He's got an Oregon Ducks jersey on, and he didn't even go to that school, all right? And so he just likes the team because of their jerseys, and so he's very lame, and also he can't walk. So there's two things at play here. And um, so he, 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 uh, they see this lame man, and he apparently is semi-famous because the way that they present him is is such that the entire community knows Larry. It's not His name's not Larry. We don't have a name for him. But it would be like, oh, that's, that's Larry. He just gets dropped off at little different points throughout the city every other day, trying to get money to be able to kind of live on, survive on, because he, he can't walk. And so this day he's outside of the temple. They see him, he's peddling for money, uh, and they say, hey, we don't have any money for you, but what we do have, we give to you, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. Now, whether you believe in miracles or not, let's suspend that belief. You can figure that, we'll figure that out in another series. But in this story, he is healed. He stands up, and as you could guess, is very thankful and excited to be around these guys and now is willing to follow them and do whatever they say in the same way that when Jesus would heal people, they would say, well, we'll follow you to the ends of the earth because you're doing these things that we cannot explain. So that's the story where we pick it up. Chapter 3, verse 11. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the, people who were, uh, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade, which is a part of the temple out in the front. Solomon's porch, some translations say. "When Verse 12, when Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Everybody's like in shock, right? Because Larry's now walking and he doesn't have his jersey on anymore. Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? Verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, so they're identifying themselves as Jewish and they're saying that we didn't do anything, it was him, has glorified his servant Jesus you handed him over to be killed. So all of a sudden he turns. It's like the celebration. Everybody's like clapping because they're like, Larry, you can walk. That's so amazing. Uh, and then, and then he, they, they quickly turn the conversation around to be like, hey, you, you killed Jesus. You realize what you did? Who's the son of God, you crazy idiots? And you killed him. And they go on. You disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. He, re- he reminds them, Pilate, who's this Roman you know, person, Roman leadership, looks at Jesus and goes, I don't really find any reason to kill yet. Um, I, I think we're gonna let him go, guys. And they're like, no, we want him killed. Then he goes on, you disown the holy and righteous one and ask that a murderer be released to you. This happened in in Luke's account and several of the other gospels where Pilate goes, he's trying to get out of it. He doesn't want to cause a riot. He wants to appease the people, uh, but he also doesn't really want to kill somebody who's not really deserving of being killed. And so he's like, I'm going to set up for them like a false choice. I'm going to give them either Jesus or this, would you rather have Jesus or a known murderer? which one would you like to be set free? Thinking, obviously, that they're going to say Jesus because they're like, well, we don't want him. And surprisingly, they go, Barabbas, we'll take him. And, and, and he's like, I'm stuck. I don't even know what to do in this case. So Peter's reminding them, you chose a murderer. Not only did you not choose Jesus or not defend him or stand up for him or whatever, you chose a murderer in his place. That's ridiculous. Knowing who he is, what you did, is like an unforgivable sin in this way. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. There's a story already that shows up in chapter three prior to this, uh, or sorry, chapter two, where they mention this. In fact, this phrase right here, we are witnesses of this. Luke is gonna record this almost verbatim multiple times throughout his collection of the actions of the apostles post-Jesus' resurrection. They kept saying, Jesus died, he rose again, and that's what we're witnesses of. Then uh, he, he goes on uh, in, and he begins to talk about like, their history as a nation and some of the prophetic literature and how this has kind of been pointed towards for any length of time, and I don't know how you guys could have missed this sort of thing. And then in verse one, it says this, the priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. So all of a sudden, the authorities, the religious authorities, show up on the fringe of this crowd, right? They see a crowd. They're figuring out what's going on. They walk over there. They seize Peter, verse 3, and John, and because it was evening, they put him in jail until the next day. We'll deal with you in the morning. It's too late to deal with you now. And everybody knows at this point how this is going to end for Peter and John. Poorly, right? This is not, the future is not looking great for them. They have already gone to great lengths, these religious leaders, and Pharisees and Sadducees to kill Jesus. And now, while the story is still fresh, by the way, this would be weeks after the events of the crucifixion. They're back in Jerusalem causing mayhem and bringing up the fact of what took place, not letting it slide under the table. Because what the Pharisees and Sadducees did in terms of working with Pilate behind the scenes and, and trying to manipulate him to do their dirty work for him, they're not proud of it. They cut some corners, it's not good. Jesus was a very popular person, but they played their cards right, apparently, for what they think, and they got done what they needed to get done, and it's dirty work, and we're not proud about it, and and then Peter and John show up, and they keep bringing it up, and they're hoping something else takes place in the news to be able to distract from what has just recently taken place, and they're not letting it go. That's what's going on in this. They had Peter and John brought before them and begin to question them. By what power or name did you do this? Which, by the way, insinuates or infers um, that they, they can't deny that Larry's walking because he's here. He's, he's probably at the trial, and they're like, we all know who Larry is. I, I don't know how it worked. Uh, maybe, maybe Larry was faking this whole time, waiting to build up to this moment, or maybe this is Larry's twin brother we don't know about. I don't know how you did this, but by what power do you think that you did all of this? Think for a moment how intimidating it would be for Peter and John at this point. Because, by the way, we oftentimes prop up Peter as uh, this like really well-educated, smart. He would go on to, you know, Jesus talked to him on the, on the mountaintop at Caesarea Philippi and says, I'm going to build the church upon you. Uh, he has cathedrals named after him, uh, popes, uh, d- even modern-day popes. Uh, claim their lineage comes from Peter. Like we think of Peter as a pretty high, like we could achieve Peter's progress. We would be, if we could be half the person Peter was, we would be in great shape. We forget the fact that Peter was not well-educated. He became a fisherman probably because he didn't have any other choice the education system took him as far as he could go, and once you get to the spot where you're just not smart enough to become certain certain levels of education, you then are forced to go and be this and, and work with your hands in, in, in the fishing, which is a stinky industry, and it's not great, and it's not, there's just so many things going on. And here's what we also, uh, here's something else we know. Um, the other gospel, one of the other gospels that's written for us is a gospel called the Book of Mark, which is a, a thing that Mark wrote down and church history talks about how Mark got his information from Peter. It could have been because Peter was so busy doing other things in the church uh, that he thought, you know what, this is really good stuff. I have great stories to tell because I was really close to Jesus. I was one of his inner three. Um, So maybe it was just a time thing, which it could have possibly been. But a lot of people think Peter didn't feel educated enough to be able to write down his story in the way that he would want declared. Now, he, write, he would write letters later on, First and Second Peter, later on in the New Testament, for sure. But at least early on, when it comes to this, this is too important for me to do. I'm not that smart of a person. I'm, I don't have a grasp on the Aramaic language when it comes to writing. I don't have the resources. So he basically empowers Mark, or hires Mark, or asks Mark to write some of these things down. I will dictate it to you, and then you write these things down. So Peter is probably not the smartest guy. I mean, for sure he's not the smartest guy in the room here. He is being, he is in a courtroom-type setting with people who know more about the Old Testament, know more about the system, know more about the procedures. This is a law and order-type procedure. There are things and ways of things, and he's like, I don't, live, I don't live and breathe this kind of stuff. And he's given the platform to be able to defend himself. That is significant. I mean, I I just don't want to put ourselves in that kind of position because um, it feels so natural for for Peter to say what he's about to say. But I just want to make sure that we understand it is not natural. He probably, they were probably expecting him to like beg for mercy, to be kind of like, I don't really know. And I'm, I'm so sorry. And would you just please let me go? And I promise I'll go away. And that's exactly the opposite of what he did. Here's how he responded. Rulers and elders of the people, verse eight. If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. Have I mentioned that already? Have I brought that up already? Let me bring it up one more time. Who you, and I imagine that he like takes his finger out and just points, he starts pointing fingers at people. Whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. I had nothing to do with it. The guy that you killed and then he rose again, we did it in his name. So blame him, I guess, if you want to. Verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John. When they saw it. What do you mean saw it? Because courage feels a lot like, like this intangible, like, take courage. You should have courage when you're doing something. They were not intimidated by power. They spoke in a way where courage was visible on the way that they acted, and their body language, and the things that they said. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus, meaning they were definitely the people who were associated as his disciples. Listen, we know this is true. We know that When somebody loses the fear of death and dying, that there is a shift in their courage. Like you see it in movies, you read about it in books, or maybe you've had a family member who realized that death was kind of imminent and the way that they talked and the way that they handled themselves in the hospital or at the deathbed or in hospice care or whatever, it was was such like there, there was a visible shift where they no longer feared dying. They knew it was coming and they spoke with an incredible authority you would you would hinge on their words when they spoke. It meant so much. You dare not say anything as an interruption point. You just you hung on every word that they said. That's the picture of what we get with Peter and John in this way. The Sadducees, uh, the the religious leaders, see again. These guys are unschooled ordinary men. There's a crowd because they just healed Larry. So everybody's kind of interested in what's going to take place with all of this. By the way, again, Larry's not real. I just made that up. Don't. Email me. I don't care. Anyways, um, uh, they see it and they know. Again, they're trying to protect themselves because it's already kind of an uproar that people probably are are still figuring out the whole Jesus thing. And he was pretty popular, and yet we killed him and got away with it, kind of maybe by the skin of our teeth. And, and so now, if we do something to these guys, it's only going to reinvigorate that kind of crowd, and we could potentially be back in the same spot that we were, or even worse. So the Sadducees look at Peter and James and John and say, "All right, listen." Knock it off. Stop talking about it. Go live quiet lives. Stop bringing this up publicly. Peter and John have a response to them. Verse 20, as for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and what we've heard. We do not take our cue from you. We are not scared of you or what you could do against us or for us or whatever. Um, We can't stop talking about this. So they decide, all right, well, we're going to throw you in jail then. So they throw him in jail again to try and, again, scare tactics, show them how powerful they are. Uh, the story goes, this is in the end of uh, Acts chapter 4, the first part of chapter 5, uh, that in the middle of the night, an angel appears, opens the gates, they escape, and they're out And instead of running to the next state or the next county, like, I don't know, I would do, um, they decide to go back into the very marketplace where they just got arrested, which I think is kind of dumb. Like, you're like, looking at this going, hey, super cool that you guys are super excited about this. I think that's awesome. Um, It really doesn't make sense to go back. They're going to know where you're at. And in fact, the next morning, it says the guards couldn't figure out how they escaped, and as they're kind of being interviewed by the religious leaders, like what happened? Who fell asleep? Who, You know, the keys, did they get out of your pocket? You unlocked the gates? What happened? Somebody comes in, like I imagine this, somebody comes in the door and go, hey, found them. They're back in the marketplace. You want to hear what they're talking about? You want to guess? They're talking about the exact same, exact same thing that they got. So they're like, all right, go Get them and bring them back because they're going to be put on trial again today. But do it discreetly. Like, don't make a big scene. They're instructing their guards. Don't make a big scene about this. We don't want to. We don't want to cause an uproar. So these guards go out and they go and find Peter and John. Sure enough, they're yelling at people in the uh, in the town square again. They're like, Hey, could you? Uh, you think you want to come with us? <laughs> no, we're not even going to try and rescue. We're going to try and do this thing quietly. And Peter and John are like, Yeah, let's do it. Let's go. We'll, go, we'll voluntarily go to our own trial. Anyways. I think that's an interesting part of the story. <clears throat> uh, Peter, uh, they're, uh, once again on trial, and there's this setting, they're, they're asked these questions in verse 29. It says, Peter and the apostles answered. They're like, why? Again, the question, why do you keep doing this? Why, even when you had a chance to escape, do you find yourself doing this again? We must obey God rather than men. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed. I don't know if I've brought this up yet. Whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. We are witnesses. Of these things, there it is again. Luke's trying to make a point here. Any time, any time in scripture, somebody thinks something's repeated, that's intentional. That's not by accident. That's not. That's not people going, "Oh, Luke, I'm so, it's so embarrassing. You've already said that." He's like, "No, I know. I'm trying to show you how important this thing is." Then a few verses later, as if, as if Luke could have said. Listen, I, I wrote down three or four of these stories, but they just kept happening over and over and over again. Verse, uh, oh, sorry, I forgot to finish the story. Um, once they're accused again of doing this, it says that they, they called the apostles in verse 40 and had them flogged. Um, which we know what being flogged means, right? We, we are, are familiar with that scenario. This is, they didn't have, back then, there was no way to look up the record of somebody, right? They didn't have electronic records. They didn't do a a background check on them when they got pulled over. There was nothing like that. The background check that they would do was, show me your back. Let's see how many times you've been flogged. Ah, I see you've had some run-ins with the law. They would forever be marked, and they celebrated. We bear the burdens of being martyrs for Christ. We bear the punishment. We are we find it to be a blessing to be punished, maybe not as severely as our Christ and as our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but in similar fashion. And that became a a source of pride, that which was supposed to be a blemish on their record, they began to see as a day of pride. And then this is the part, verse 42. This is Luke basically saying, this just happened over and over again. Day after day, after day after day in the temple courts, from house to house, they never stopped teaching, proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. They couldn't shake it. They wouldn't shake it. These are our, by the way, if you're a Christian, these are our people. This is how the early church started. This is the actions of the apostles post Jesus. They embraced a standalone version of Christianity, one that says, We are witnesses to something that took place. Now, When I was in college, I also had to do like a read and book report, basically, on an author named Richard Dawkins, who wrote a book called uh, The God Delusion. He was part of kind of like this new atheist movement. Post 9-11, there was like this movement for like a couple of famous authors. They called, informally known as the New Atheists, so Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, and a couple more wrote a lot of books um, talking about the danger of religion um, in, a, in a state post 9 11 of heightened animosity towards Islam and trying to push, you know, Islam is the, is the, the, the mitigating factor for why they drove planes into uh, the World Trade Center. They basically said, listen, the problem is not isolated to Islam, the problem is all of religion, right? So... God is not great. Uh, There is a delusion of God. So I remember reading this book, and I've got a couple of quotes for you. I've used one of them before. It might be familiar to you. But um, here's what they write about in trying to really help people, in their mind, walk away from faith, from Christianity in general. Here's why you should walk away. Here's the first quote. The God of the Old Testament is arguably The most unpleasant character in all of fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. I did pretty good there, didn't I? I practiced that all week, you guys. Um, Why would you want to follow a God like that? When you read, and, and by the way, when you read some of the Old Testament in isolation in that way, you see, like, he's not pulling this out of nowhere. Like, this is, this is one of those things you're like, I don't think that's really in there. Genocidal? Right? Uh, infanticidal? He kills babies? Like, what? Like Margo mentioned in the podcast this week, Elijah, one of God's prophets, is out and he's, he's made fun of by some kids, some teenage boys who called him Baldy, right? Hey, Baldy. And he's like, God, I pray that Barry would come out of the forest and just devour these kids. And then it happened. You're like, that's not in the Bible. Huh? Yeah, it is. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? Richard Dawkins is like, you guys, you Christians, you should know this is in your Bible. Then he goes on. Uh, To be fair, much of the Bible is not systematically evil. Oh, good. A little concession there. But just plain weird. All right. Well, yeah, we're back at it. As you would expect of a chaotically cobbled together anthology of disjointed documents, composed, revised, translated, distorted, and improved by hundreds of anonymous authors, editors, and copyists, unknown to us and mostly unknown to one another, spanning nine centuries. You crazy Christians, you believe in your Bible. Like, you don't even know what's in your Bible. Now, here's the funny thing. Like, He's pointing to it and saying, the problem I have with Christianity is the Bible. And I imagine, I tried to imagine this week what Paul and Peter's and all of these apostles' responses would be to accusations like this. Like, What do you think of, if, knowing what we know from Acts, Acts chapters three through five of Peter's activity post-Jesus' resurrection, what do you think his response would be in this? I wrote, like, if, if this was a debate and like Society A is presented and now here comes the rebuttal, this would be, I think, friend's version of Peter's rebuttal. Fellows, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, whoever else, I'm not even sure what some of those words mean. You are obviously more educated than I am. I've never really given much thought to the age of the earth. I can't really comment on that. I'm certainly familiar with the God of the, what did you call it again? The Old Testament? Again, because. For Peter and Paul and all of them, that was Jewish scriptures. There was no Bible. That would not come for 400 years. He's quoting, he's pulling these things from a part of it known for them as the Jewish scriptures. He would say, I know my people's history, including God's instructions to Moses and Joshua. I'm sure the reason I've never questioned some of those stories is because of how and when I was raised. But gentlemen, none of that, none of what you've just said has anything to do with my decision to follow Jesus. My reason for believing isn't something I've heard or read or had read to me. I believe what I believe because of what I saw. I watched him die. I know the people who buried him. And then I saw him again, this time with my own eyes. That is the reason for my hope. Listen, the Christian faith began with the resurrection of Jesus. It began with people going, we are witnesses to something that we cannot explain. The Bible would come years later as a way of documenting what took place. The document recorded the event. The event is what spurred Christianity forward. Um, Let me illustrate it this way. You probably have a birth certificate at home, don't you? Your birth certificate recorded the events of your birth. You were not born because your parents got a birth certificate and they're like, "Well, now we can have a baby. Let's do it." If you lost if you lost your birth certificate, you would not cease to exist. If you go to the DMV and they go, "We're going to need a copy of your birth certificate." And be like, "I don't have it." They'd be like, "Well, you don't exist then." You'd be like, "No, I just don't have a birth certificate." Like, it's fine. Take it away. Whatever. I'm still here. I still want to drive. That, for me, is helpful in understanding, okay, what we're about to go into is what do you do with some of this stuff that's in here? Because I lived and I grew up in a scenario where you take it away, it feels like if, if all of a sudden you discredit parts of the Bible or say, well, that doesn't really apply to you, then it feels like a little house of cards, You pull one card out from the bottom, the whole thing collapses, right? And that was an attitude for a long time for a lot of people and and continues to be for a lot of people. Wow, you can't just start picking and choosing what you want to believe out of the Bible because after that, then it's a slippery slope. Then what is it that you believe? I get it. But it's interesting because the Gentile converts early on in Christianity did not convert to Christianity because of the Old Testament, they converted because of the story of the resurrection of Jesus, and then they listened to the teachings of Jesus. And then at some point, they became so fascinated by the divine nature of Jesus that they then began to look back at Jewish scriptures that would help point towards and inform who this Jesus person is. And then later on, they include, they, they, the early church decided it would be important for us to have the Jewish scriptures as a part of our New Testament, of our New Testament documents that point towards, the, uh, point towards Jesus, that help inform who he was in this way. But let's not get lost behind the fact that the book did not create Christianity. The book exists because Christians were trying to come up with what are important things that we want generationally people to know about. That's... What's so fascinating to me. So if, if you have walked away from Christianity because of something that existed in here that just didn't make sense to you, or just I just can't reconcile that with how I want to live my life, and you walked away from it, and you're listening to this or watching this line or whatever, perhaps you may have walked away, uh, unfortunately, unnecessarily. So what then... Are we to do with the first three quarters of our Bible? What do we do with that? That's what I hope to talk about next week, and I hope you come back for part two of Irresistible. Let's pray, Father. I pray that you would help us to become people who. Understand where to put the confidence of our faith and um, how we live this thing out. I I pray that um, you would help me and and corporately us as as a, a group of people navigate and go try and understand the path of the disciples and what they believed and how that inspired them. And may we be the type of people whose lives are forever changed, not because of something that we read and and we're not witnesses to the resurrection, but we can put our trust in those who did and and really believe. If that's true and if if he conquered death in that way and then has something for us and we can learn about and be fascinated by the person and the teachings of Jesus, perhaps then that would change how we believe uh, everything. And uh, this can be a really challenging piece of our faith, especially for those of us who have called ourselves you know, Christians for a really long time. I pray that you would give us wisdom as we navigate and courage to move forward when we know or when we feel like you're revealing this truth to us. So give us that wisdom and that courage in your name. Amen.